Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is Af Malhotra on Straight Talk with Af. I have a wonderful guest with me today, and uh, an individual who is most of, most importantly a comedian, a comedian, because I'm an artist too and a performer. And this is one part of her many skills that I really do admire. Uh, she's a comedian. She is a wordsmith. She is an author. She's an entrepreneur of her own business, the CEO of her own business and a campaigner. And I haven't heard her describe herself as a campaigner. So I've decided to use that word. And because she's a campaigner, because she's campaigning, she's an activist, because she's like me, passionate about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and this concept of inversity, which I'm gonna let her tell you all about. Welcome Kareth Foster to Straight Talk with Af. What a pleasure it is to have you on the show. Thank you for, for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. What an absolute honor. Yeah, the honor is mine. And uh, you wrote a book in 2020. Uh, and it, the title of the book is You Can Be Perfect or You Can Be Happy. I'll repeat that again for those who didn't figure this one out. You can be perfect, your core, or you can just be happy. And um, this book is a must read. It's on Amazon. We have tons of sales all over the world. Um, Kareth will tell you all about it momentarily. And in 2020, uh, you wrote 203 pages of this book. This is, I guess, was you said you were ruminating on this for a while. I did straight talk during COVID. That was my breakthrough. Yours was the book and everything else that you've been doing before, during and after. Um, but before we go into any of that, I just want to say uh, your uh, your work so far and the, the homework that I've done around a lot of the podcasts or the, the YouTube videos that I've seen, your book articles that you publish in the New York Times and so on, a lot of it speaks to the mission that I am on, which is around diversity economics, especially around, I, I love the way you talk about the word diversity. You gave it a very interesting meaning where you said D-I-V, diversity, the D-I-V in diversity, the first three uh, letters, also le connect with other words that are negative words like divide or a divorce, uh, for that matter. And perhaps there's an opportunity now to, to reconsider this paradigm and come up with a different word. And you have my pledge and vote for that. We don't know what that is. Inversity could be could be one of them, uh, but we I'm definitely need to rebrand. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So listen, the ball's in your court. First, I'd love to start with, before we go into the book, we always do this on Straight Talk. So who is Karith? Tell us about uh, how you got here, your past. I mean, just be as vulnerable as you can, because that's super interesting for all of us and important, because we need to figure out what happened to get you this to this point, to get you to, to this point. And of course, I uh, admire and I respect my trauma. It happened and it's fine. And it's made me who I am. I'm sure you have your own stories. Uh, tell us a little bit about your life journey. We would love to love to hear about your story. Absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah. So I, I, I was born in Denver, Colorado. Um, and what was interesting was the neighborhood I was brought up in until I was seven yeah. was very diverse, like incredibly diverse. The people to the right of us were, or they were a black family. The people to the left were Hispanic. Across the street, they were white. There was a mixed race couple, caddy corner. Around the corner was an Asian family. It was like real life Sesame Street. Yeah, yeah. And then we moved to Texas when I'm seven. And we moved to a place called Plano, which is actually where I'm back now. 
Um, and we were the only black family in like a three mile radius. At, from that point on, I was always the only black person or person of color in my classes, whether it was in public school or private school in yeah. Dallas. And that became my normal. Now, I did go back to public school in high, for high school. And I had probably the first traumatic thing, serious, traumatically, seriously traumatic thing happened where I thought, as all teenagers do, all adolescents, I don't fit in. I'm, you know, I not realizing that was just part of adolescence, but also thinking, well, maybe if I were with more Black people, more Black students, I feel a little more comfortable in my own skin. Not that I was having a problem with my white friends or, you know, socially fitting in. I was popular. I was on the student council, but I always, I felt that lacking, right? So I transferred school to where there were more African-American students, more black students. And for the first time in my life, people were mean to me, like cruel, like bullying. And I'm like, but wait, you're, you're supposed to be the crew that accepts me. What is happening? And yeah. it was a total, I don't, you know, want to curse, but it was, it was a mind F. It was yeah. a, it was like, what is happening? It was like bizarre world. And I was traumatized because A, I was also very sickly. Um, I had severe asthma and allergies. I was on a lot of medication, prednisone being one of them. I don't know if you know about prednisone, but yes. Yes. it's this horrible hormone that makes you just blow up. You have no control of your appetite. You're emotionally a wreck. So that coupled with being, you know, 15, 16, and then bullying was a horrible mixture. And I actually did end up, and I talk about it in my book, in an adolescent psychiatric facility. And because I'm like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Um, I knew I didn't want to die, but it just felt so hopeless. Mm. But while I was there in that facility, I was with other teenagers. I was the only one who didn't go to CD meetings, chemical dependency. I was the only one who didn't go to AA meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't go to SA meetings, sexual abuse. And I'm like having this kind of reframe of my life and what was upsetting me. And like, oh, God, maybe things aren't that bad like, right. you know, comparatively. Yeah. Not that my trauma wasn't real. And it didn't affect me, but to have that broader picture of what other people were going through too, it was a real eye-opener. And that was kind of the beginning. It was the seed that got planted of how dare I let anybody determine my worth based on what they think I should be, the stereotype yeah. that they think I should buy into. Just because I'm Black, I'm supposed to sound a certain way or act a certain way or dress a certain way. and I. You know, it, what was interesting is that kind of was a battle for so much of my life, much of my career in entertainment, because I, you know, in Hollywood, New York, they want to typecast you. They want to put you in this nice little category in this little space. And if you don't fit that, they don't know what to do with you. Right. So for a long time, I struggled because, well, you know, I wasn't the sassy black girl who rolled my neck and talked about baby daddies and getting high but I wasn't the cute little blonde girl either. So it was like, what do we do with Kareth? And I had to tell people what to do with me. Mm. And maybe even to this day, I feel like I do. Um, but it was, it, it's been a challenge over many decades to have to 
define myself and have other people accept that definition. Mm. Mm. Tell me a little bit about your family. So do you have any siblings or um, cousins? Or, yeah, I have a younger brother. I have a very small family, though. I have no first cousins. My father was an only child, and my mother had a brother who didn't get married till he was 50 and had no children. So it was just me and my brother going up. We were four years apart. Um, I wish we were closer than we are. We're just not. I don't know if it's because he's a Gemini. Or <laughs> <laughs> What's your star sign? I'm a cancer. I'm a cancer with a Scorpio moon, Scorpio rising. So wow. okay. all water all the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But not as emotional. I married a I'm cancer. a Leo. I'm a Leo. Right? So. Okay. Yeah. And I married a Cancerian, which is right. fun. It's either like beautifully, amazingly harmonic or like a Spanish telenovela. Like yeah, there's, there's either drama or like everything's copacetic. Um so yeah, I, I I have a younger brother. My parents are amazing. They've been married for 56 years this year. I yeah. credit them with who I am, teaching me who I am, where I've come from, being supportive of everything that I've done. Even though, you know, after going to a lovely private women's college and studying abroad at Oxford, when I said I wanted to be a comedian, I'm sure they wanted to hurt someone, <laughs> but they supported me yeah. um, and it's worked out. You know, it's worked out. So I, I, you know, I'm very fortunate. I, I, I came from a loving home. I came from people who rallied behind me and I am so blessed in that respect. And I don't think I would be doing any of what I'm doing now mm-hmm. if I hadn't had that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe I would, you never know, like, you know, maybe you're destined for things, but I certainly am going to give credit where I think it's due. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's to my, my parents and my family and the friends who, family friends who've, you know, been part of my journey. I often talk about um, in 2013, when I left the corporate world, I went into entrepreneurship. I had these huge realizations about uncertainty. And I realized that making friends with uncertainty is probably going to be the hardest part of my new journey as an entrepreneur. Cause you go solo when you go entrepreneur, right? And if you have a compare contrast opportunity where you've had it all comfortable and rosy, actually, and uh, almost become complacent and lazy to something that is like wild, like, you know, someone's just literally thrown you into shark infested waters. I, I started to use this term a lot. It's become part of my vocabulary. And one fine day I asked myself, how do I find certainty in uncertainty? Right. Which is a bit of a oxymoron or contradiction. And I realized that although I live my life making friends with uncertainty, it's only because of certainty that I'm able to thrive and survive uncertainty. And what is that certainty is what you've described, my family, my wife, now my children, the closest people in my life, the stable uh, stable factors, the equilibrium, you know, the, the security. And I think if you have that whenever, wherever in life, through whatever phase you may be going through like you have, it's terribly important. It's it's what is you know defines insanity or sanity for a lot Absolutely. of people. Can, um, can we put that in other terms though? Because yeah. I I love what you just said. Yeah. But that falling into the uncertainty, that's surrender, right? That's surrender. Mm-hmm. You are mm-hmm. surrendering. You are letting go, and the certainty that you can't see sometimes is faith, right? The belief that it will work out. 
however it is supposed mm. to in your best interest. Mm. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that talks to the reprogramming of, of energy, not just yeah. the mind. The mind is actually simple. It's the reprogramming of energy and frequency, I think, which is where I guess you're alluding to, right? Um, you, you, you are bang on. So, so you've had this past, you've, you've been through, had some medical challenges and had this realization, some form of relativity realization of, yes, it's bad for me, but it could be much worse. And oh my God, at least I'm not suffering like these people. And I, and you got yourself through it. And you, what you stayed in the United States, are you, is that the part of the U S you stayed in or did you move around? What happened to you thereafter? I did. I, I left Texas vowing to never return after I graduated at 17. And I went to school in Missouri. I went to a tiny women's college, actually the second oldest women's college in America. And I am now so very grateful that I did because that environment also was very conducive in giving me the spirit that I have. Yeah. One where women are not my competition. They are my comrades. Yeah. The other where I am capable and able to do anything I set my mind to. And I don't have to be masculine or a man to do it. Mm. I can be in my femininity and my divine feminine and still be strong. And that is an asset, not um, something that that takes me out of any kind of game. Yeah. Um, I studied abroad at Oxford. I went to St. Peter's College for a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I fell in love with England. Um, leaving, I wept like someone had died because I just felt so at home there. Maybe I had a past life there or two. Mm-hmm. Um, I came back to the States, graduated, got uh, a degree in broadcast journalism and worked for a small ABC affiliate in Columbia, Missouri. And then I got a call from one of my best friends saying, hey, Barbara Walters is about to start a show. You need to come out and interview. And I was terrified. And my mom, again, one of my support systems said, look, you get on that plane tomorrow. And so I did. And I interviewed two weeks later, I get a call saying I got the job two weeks later, I'm on the way to New York City to work for what was to become the television show The View. And that was interesting, because I had always thought from the time I was probably in that middle school, like, I'm going to be a beacon of light and truth. That is my destiny. That's what I'm supposed to be here for. I'm supposed to bring people together. And I thought, well, of course, the media is how you do that. I'm going to be an on-air personality. And I'm going to tell people the truth. And I'm going to get people to think. And I'm going to bring people together. And I'm going to expose all of the the, the bad and the evil. And I get into TV, and both on the local and the national level. Um, it was I, I was a little disappointed, to say the least. <laughs> Because I saw how why did you, you say that? Um, because I think while there are very there are many, many good and well-intentioned people in media, I think that the primary goal has become obviously to elicit viewers. And they do that now through fear. They do that now through propaganda. And we don't get the truth. We we don't. We we get versions of it. Mm. But if you want to know who's running the show, just watch the commercials. Who's sponsoring mm-hmm. it? Follow the money. Mm. That's why I don't have sponsors. I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. 
because it's so hard. Can I ask you one quick question? Because, yeah. you know, I'm just deviating, but this is an open conversation. Because I want to figure out how you went into got into comedy. But as a comedian, as a comedian, because a, a comedian is a performer, right? A comedian is a performer. And you've got to have thick skin as a comedian. You've got to be able to take the rough with the smooth. Sometimes you get heckled. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes, well, often you get heckled, depending on how how you started your journey. And you, you'll know better than I will. And you built this, you build this tough sort of coat of armor, right? And you're able to just sort of like, you know, forget about it and move forward because you're so clear as to what you're doing, your performance, what you're there to do, and you don't get distracted. It's a real, very important skill. And, you know, I've often felt, it's funny because I've often felt, I admire all sorts of people in the world. I do admire musicians and comedians loads loads because they're both different types of performers comedians because you've got to be able to take a lot of shit and continue to continue in a short space of time this is not like you know you're here for the 10-year plan in a short tiny space of time you've got to stay in your mode ignore all the failures at that point because they are failures when someone says oh you're rubbish or heckling you get off the stage you've got to be able to get through that and make people laugh and sometimes you have crappy shows and sometimes you have sterling shows. I want to ask you something because I know you do so many different things. You're an entrepreneur and, you know, you write books, the whole lot. What has comedy given you? What has comedy? I know you talked about media because why I'm saying this is because you said media. Blah, blah, and now you because comedy is amazing. What has comedy given you and how has it helped you be the person you are today? Um, before I get into how you got into it. Comedy has given me life. Comedy's given me hope. Comedy yeah. has given me an energy and a high that I don't think any drug could accomplish. Um, I, you know, I, I hate to burst your bubble a little bit because you said comedians are, they, they're so tough and they're so strong. Comedians are actually incredibly sensitive people, <laughs> like hypersensitive. And usually they can't take a joke. Yeah. Um, but they, they do have this amazing shell that they put on when we get on stage, because you know what we do, which is really strong and brave. We're vulnerable. Yeah. There is no more vulnerable art form than stand-up comedy. There isn't. As a musician, you can be with your instrument or with other singers in a play. You're reading a script. You've got a director. Yeah. Comedy is all you all the time. Your face, your body, your words, your thought for complete acceptance or complete rejection right then and there. And it's hard. And my hat's off to anybody who does it and goes for it and makes it because it is, it is hard. And you do have those days when you just bomb and everybody's done it. Seinfeld, Chappelle, like we all have that. And that's the term we call it bombing in comedy where you just like want to go home and never you know, put your head under the covers and never come out. Mm. But there's also a saying, you're only as good as your last show. Right. And there is something that comes with having a great show, that comes with having people connect with you so viscerally that they think what you think is funny, that you're conveying a message. What comedy has given me is the skills of being a master communicator. Because the number one rule in comedy, yeah, it's be funny, but it's know your audience. And if you are going to convey an idea, a thought, a concept, 
you have to be able to reach people as many as you can at one time where they are. That means you can't talk over their heads. It means you can't talk beneath them. And when you are a real comic and you've been on the road, I mean, I've traveled from Washington State to Washington, D.C., even internationally, to be able to harness that skill of reaching people so that they get what you get. That's magic. That's just magic. How did you get into it? I was in the television network. I was at The View at ABC, and I just was very frustrated. I I didn't have a creative outlet. I was doing the the behind-the-scenes production work, which I'm very grateful for because I now know how to produce and write and book a television show, and I've done that Mm -hmm. since. Um, But there was this yearning to be creative. When I was in college, I'd had a radio show. I'd been on the air doing some broadcasting stuff. And I missed it terribly. And I was in the ladies room. We shared studio space with this soap opera. And this young woman who was an intern comes up to me in the ladies room. And is like, hey, can you watch me do a set? And I always tell people, if anybody comes up to you in a New York City bathroom and asks you to watch them do something, you run. <laughs> I didn't even know if she was talking about a set. She, and so I go, okay, because I was just kind of stunned. And she proceeded to do like six minutes of stand-up comedy. And I'm like, how did you learn to do that? Because I always love comedy. I was the kid that would sneak and stay up late to watch like the late night shows to see who the comedians were. I I was enthralled by it, but never in a million years did I think I would do that. Yeah. I was a speaker, sure. And I, you know, would always do things at school and for, you know, clubs that I was in. But to be funny, to try to get people to laugh, like what? But I did it. I and I, I, I took a class. I signed up and I took a class, and it was the best birthday present I think I've ever given myself. Wow! And that one class encouraged you, inspired you, and of course, you did more to go onto stage. Yeah. Well, I was paralyzed for a month after. I'm like, okay, what do I do now? Yeah. Because yeah. I did it. It felt amazing. Where do I go from here? And this was, I'm telling you, this was such a divine thing because. I was living in New Jersey. I would kitty sit for this woman who worked for ABC while she would go out of town. So I'd stay in Manhattan in her apartment and take care of her cat. And I'm walking along. We need, I needed really inexpensive black shoes for the daytime Emmy Awards. And I need, and I was like, okay, I need to find out what I'm supposed to do with this comedy thing. And I'm walking along Broadway and I come upon a stand-up comedy club. It was stand-up New York. The door was open. They were cleaning because it was daytime. Mm. And I walk in and I meet a gentleman who became like my comedy guru. He was almost like my professor. Mm. And I mentioned that I, you know, had done a stand-up show, was interested in doing more. When I told him I'd work for The View, that was like, oh, well, maybe she can, you know. So that was a very helpful thing to have in my back pocket. Yeah. But what started was a relationship with this club where during the day I would work my daytime job. And at night I would work in the basement, making phone calls, telling people that they won free tickets to the show. And if there was time, if a comedian was late, I would get stage time. So I learned to produce shows. I learned to bring bringer shows because that's what you have to do when you start out at the bottom. Like you don't automatically end up like Kevin Hart or Amy Schumer. Like you have to pay your dues. You have to put butts in seats. And you have to help the club make money. It's a trade-off for your time. And because, you know, in New York or LA, they can pay you peanuts because mm-hmm. you're getting on stage with the opportunity to be seen by an agent, by a casting director, mm-hmm. by someone who could take your career in its level. 
and this was, you know, I started in the late nineties. So this was pre-internet. Well, pre-TikTok and, you know, YouTube and Social that and stuff. Yeah. 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 I mean, our, our, our audition tapes were on VHS cassette. Yeah. Like we would have to mail them to people and like you get a dozen, you know, dozens made and you send it out hoping that somebody would watch your set, hoping that somebody at Comedy Central would think you were funny too. And so you, you did, you paid your dues, you got on stage eventually. So did you have a set that you did regularly on a, on a weekday or a weekend or something with someone? Um, I, as much as, I mean, the game was you get as much stage time as possible. So you go to their book shows, their shows right. where you, the club puts on where you get paid. And then there are open mics, as I said, and they're produced shows. And, um, you know, it, it's just a matter of getting as much stage time as you can, because comedy is an art you can't practice in your bedroom with a hairbrush like you have to know how the audience is reacting so the good comics would record themselves and record you know audio and if you could do video at the time you do video um so you could see you know what did I do with my face that worked or what shouldn't I do again how what was the inflection in my voice like it is it's a business and that's what I think a lot of people don't realize as artists you can have the artistic side of you and you should, of course. But if you want to be successful, you have to be a business person as well. Mm -hmm. And so do you still do comedy? I do. I do. It's, it's like the mafia. You know, you try to leave, but it pulls you back in. <laughs> you can't. You can't ever give it up. I, 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 don't, I don't do it as regularly, yeah. um, but I, I do get up every now and then. I just, I, you know, I got asked to headline for a, sh a, a town in Ohio because they couldn't find any clean comedians. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I had to like really get back on the horse. I had to start doing open mics again to get my 45 minute set back up because primarily I, I speak. I, I, you know, I give keynotes and workshops, which, you know, what I love about that is I get to infuse the humor from the stand-up life. And so that really makes a difference because laughter it's so healing. It's so cathartic. It's so powerful when you're trying to get people enrolled and engaged, especially in a topic as sensitive as, as DEI or DEIB, because it's so personal and people are either on the offense or the defense. And to be able to use humor to create a neutral space where people can have the ahas, where people can have the epiphanies, where people can just sit back for a second and let, let it let it marinate. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 again, it's, it's magic. It's a gift. Yeah. 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 And I, I think, you know, now we know so much more about state of mind, the concept of, um, you know, like I said earlier, frequencies and how you feel is how you operate and the company you keep, uh, determines the state in which you, uh, operate in mostly, et cetera, et cetera. And comedy is just one of those incredible things that brings out the best in human beings. It really does. I think comedy and charity, the two C's, um, comedy and charity actually bring out two incredible, uh, and actually the third C is children. So, yeah, yes. I made that. I made that up because I was just thinking about it now. I thought, what, yeah. what, what, what brings out the best in me? Charity, for sure. Every time I'm giving back to someone, I feel amazing. Yeah, my kids, they mostly bring out the best in me. 
<laughs> they can be challenging. I, I trust me. I get yeah. it. Wait, it gets yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and comedy, you yeah. know, I, the three very, very important things in life. And you, you actually fortunate enough to have um, uh, all of them to a large extent in your life. And so, so you did your comedy. We figured out how you got into it. You you then set up. You wrote your book then. So when did you set up your business, Investy? We're going to so, talk about. Okay. That well, let's let's backtrack a little bit. Yeah. So while I was doing comedy, I I was doing it just only just for myself, comedy. Yeah. Like and my passion. mother, please yeah. get health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I got I got another day job. I left the View, and yeah. I started working in uh, corporate America. I started working for Estee Lauder. The makeup and their headquarters in New York. Yeah. And I was in yeah. HR and I, you know, was given the opportunity to climb the corporate ladder. I mean, if yeah. I'd stayed there, I'd probably be a VP of some sort. Yeah. Um, I loved who I worked with. I love the Lauder family. Um, I was very fortunate in that again, community surrounded by people who supported me. I mean, there'd be times when I would have a two hour lunch and I wasn't mm-hmm. supposed to, but they let me go because I was hosting a show on Sirius XM to, you know, further my career, but I would come in early or I would work late. And so, but to have the people that again, supported me and rallied behind me like that, you know, and I don't know if it was because it was me and I had, you know, the personality I did, or it was them. It was just, again, just such a blessing, right? So kismet to be in that space. Um, and I kicked ass. I mean, I, I worked hard. I didn't, you know, it wasn't lackadaisical. I didn't let things slide. Mm. Um, and there would be times I'm like, God, why am I here? Like, cause our, our, our offices were on 40, uh, 59th and 5th, like right on the right. Southeast corner of Central Park. Yeah. And I'd look out the window sometimes and I'd see the little colored dots on Central Park's great lawn of the people just lounging in the sun in the middle of the day. And I'm like, one day I'm going to be one of those little colored dots. <laughs> I don't have anything to do, but be and sit in the sun. Um, and there were times where I'm like, why am I in a nine to five job? God, you know, this isn't what I want to do. Now I know why, because now I have corporate clients who need people with an HR background, who need people who know what that life is like, who need people who know what the challenges is like, what the challenges are like. I, you know, everything for a reason, right? And it's all, you know, accumulated and and come to this point where I left The View, I I left, I went to stand-up, I I was still in stand-up while I pursued, you know, my corporate career. Mm -hmm. I left the corporate career to start a production company that lasted about 20 minutes. And I get a call saying, hey, Kara, are you interested in a radio TV opportunity? Uh, yeah, of course. By the way, it's with Don Imus. Now, Don Imus was the shock jock, the original shock jock before Howard Stern, right. who got in trouble for making disparaging remarks about a primarily Black basketball team from Rutgers University. Right. Uh, and, and it was the perfect combination of an old wealthy white guy saying something really inappropriate and a slow news day. Mm. And I got the call because they wanted to quote unquote diversify the staff and have a national dialogue about racism and race in America. And I thought, oh my God, this is this is my chance. I get to bring in my broadcasting. I get to bring in my comedy because you know it's supposed to be a comedy show. We're talking news and politics of the day. And I get to be me. I don't have to be the stereotype of what we see of black women in the media. I get to be authentically Kareth and open the eyes 
of so many people who probably never interacted with me at all, except for maybe as an assistant or a housekeeper. Right. This was the dream job, but it became my tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times because my boss, sadly, Don Imus, was an alcoholic and a drug addict who never sought recovery. He wasn't drinking or taking drugs anymore, but he didn't. He didn't take care of whatever it was that caused him to do those things. So he was still manic. He never went to treatment or had AA or any kind of, you know, therapy to to work through that. So you never knew who you were going to get on a daily basis. The amazing Marconi award-winning genius or 14-year-old bipolar boy who literally ruled the land and could do anything to you at any time. I mean, I saw him make grown men cry. He wielded a loaded gun at me. Like there was stuff that you're like, wait a second, where's HR? And there was none. There was none. You are HR. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, where's HR? I've been here, but like, not in this case, but where, like, why is nobody doing anything? But it was, it was considered acceptable. And what I realized again, like reflecting back, like I'm not the only person who's gone through that. There are people who aren't even in as high profile, Mm. as high paying jobs as I was, who are, you know, in abusive, Mm. work relationships yeah and they're stuck because they may not have another option at least they may not think they have another option so these roles that you it's fascinating because your journey is so interesting and um i haven't heard this before by the way because i watched all of your your podcast. So um, I needed to get this out of you. I was trying to say, who's, who is this person? There's got to be something here that I've got to get dig into. So investigating. So you've been through these incredible roles, seeing these incredible experiences, did the corporate gig and then what happened? So I I want to figure out how you fell into the DEIB space and university and started to do your own thing. Sure. So while I was at IMS, again, the whole goal of my being there was to diversify the staff on air and have these national discussions. Right. That's what really was a catalyst for me going, wait a second, if we've been doing diversity for decades now, decades, why does it feel like it's two steps forward, 10 steps back? Sure. And there was another incident when I, when I left IMS, there was an incident that happened with a young man by the name of Tyler Clementi. Coincidentally, a Rutgers University student, he took his own life by jumping off the George Washington Bridge because he was outed by his roommate and some other classmates. They recorded him secretly in an intimate situation with another young man. Mm. And when I heard about this senseless death, this senseless Mm. suicide, I thought, oh my God, how heartbreaking, how Mm. horrible that anybody would feel that alone would feel that they don't belong, would feel that they don't fit in because of who they are. There's got to be something I can do. And the first iteration of my work was called Stereotyped 101. And I took programming to colleges and universities to deliver the message of diversity and belonging, celebrating what makes us diverse and unique in our wonderful selves, but also reminding people we're in this together. We're on this planet together. We Mm. have more in common than we don't. And we should never, ever think that because we are different or not part of the status quo, that there's something wrong with us. Mm. And that was, that became my mission. And again, I was like, well, 
if we're having all these, again, these diversity programs, why is that not the main message that's coming out? Why are people getting upset? Why are people not embracing it fully? And then I started looking more into like how these programs were operating. And, you know, it's like marriage. You know, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. <laughs> Anybody who's married knows that. Oh, yeah. Uh, do I look fat in this dress? And a no can be like, no, or no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, We're not stupid. You know, we may not all have the same IQs, but emotionally we pick up on things. We resonate, right? The energy, the frequency. And so I realized that so much of the programming that was out there that was very well-intentioned, it was having the opposite effect. And I'm like, so how how can I flip the switch on this? Because, and then it became so obvious, right? Like we taught, you spoke earlier. I looked at even the word diversity. D-I-V is the root of that. Divide, division, divorce. And we're shocked that diversity isn't bringing people together. I mean, it's not that hard. It's not rocket science. So I came up with the concept of inversity. Still celebrating, again, all that we are and our identities and and, and what makes us up, our backgrounds, our heritage, our abilities, but expanding the definition of diversity to be more than just our gender and sexuality or ethnicity. Diversity of thought, diversity of ideas. There's so much more that makes us up. We're not monoliths. But if we are only going to focus on the things that separate and divide us, guess what? It's the law of attraction where your attention goes, energy flows. So if we're focused on all the things that separate and divide us, we're shocked that we're still feeling separated and divided. Let's focus on what we have in common, how we can be inclusive, but most importantly, and I think powerfully, being introspective, going inside, understanding your value and worth so that you can see it in somebody else. It's like the expression, you can't really love someone until you love yourself. That is so true. And most of us don't love ourselves. Most of us don't even like ourselves. We wake up in the morning, look in the mirror. First thing we say is something terrible, something negative, something that if a stranger said it to us, we'd be like, who raised you? Mm. Be appalled. And yet we're exposed to be kind and loving to others. No, that's not going to happen. Not until something changes. Not until we make a shift. Not until we teach people that it's okay to not be perfect. You know, yeah, the name of my book is You Can Be Perfect and You Can Be Happy. Spoiler alert, there's no such thing as perfection. Yes, strive for excellence, of course, always, every day. Mm -hmm. Perfection is that golden carrot that you will never catch. And even if you do, within seconds, a bigger, shinier carrot is going to be put right in front of you. Right. And so we, even if we can understand the concept that we aren't perfect, we still seek it in other people. Mm. And when they don't, they we get disappointed. We get upset. We 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 go back mm. to stereotypes, right? The biases that opens the floodgates for those, and that makes it acceptable. You shared a lot of perspective around staying with this thought process, uh, you know, around training programs in ZEIB, and you know, what, a couple of things I want to throw at you. So because we're now in that space. Diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, this entire area has become quite popular over the last two or three years, and we know why, okay? And uh, corporations have picked it up, 
public sector institutions have picked it up. It's a global phenomenon, at least in the West. And that's one very important disclaimer I want to put out there because I study the East as much as I study the West and not many people do. And there are clear differences in diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging in the East versus the West. And when I say the East, India is different to China, China is different to Malaysia, Malaysia is different to Japan. And all of these countries do care about diversity, inclusion, equity, and whatever, uh, however you frame it and what word comes first or last, their history and their demographic does play a massive, and culture plays a massive role in doing it the way we're doing it in the West. The West is doing it differently, not better, not worse, differently. And it's because of, of our history. The Americas does it differently because of the, the story of slavery, which is, you know, entrenched and cemented into its its uh, DNA, really. And you, it's going to take God knows how long for it to, to be etched out. And UK Europe has a different history of colonialism. And there are things there, there. There are things going on here, where whether you want to call it restitution of sorts, or you want to call it some sort of payback, or you want to call it guilt, or whatever. The 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 dynamics of DEIB are very different based on which part of the world you look at. I think first we've got to accept that a, the history of a nation and the culture it's adopted and adopting now and will adopt in the future does have a massive role to play around how DEIB figures itself out and works itself out, right? So now that's the backdrop. The DEIB market is jumping from 10 billion, which was last year, 10.2 billion, which is the amount of money being spent on diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, related products and services, to 30 billion, according to McKinsey, World Economic Forum, and many others who are now using the same data set, 28 to 30 billion. That's a 3x jump in seven years. And it's good for you and I. It's good for people like us because you're like, yeah, that's fantastic. More, more investment, more changes and so on. Here's the problem. To date, most of that money, I and I cannot give you an exact percentage uh, figure on how much, but it's above 50% of that money is gone into unconscious bias training, other types of derivatives of unconscious bias which I am not a fan of generally for loads of reasons. And I know you and I have similarities there. So we've, we've got inversity going on here. We're, that, those are the things we have a lot of similarity around. Tell me what you feel and how you feel about, honestly, with maximum vulnerability, about where money is being spent on DEIB, where is it being spent sensibly, and where is it a frigging waste of time? And uh, because there are a lot of skeptics who say, this is AF, this is nonsense. As soon as I say diversity economics or whatever, DEIB, oh, not this nonsense again. You know, honestly, a lot of, lot, they happen to be men, but a lot of them, oh, not this BS again. And then I have right. to convince them and say, no, 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 forget the branding. Right. Forget the branding. Right. Right. Because let me explain what it's really trying to do. It's trying to bring people together. It's trying to drive employee engagement. It's trying to create connectedness in the organization. Surely you believe in that because you'll make more money, you capitalist. And they're like, oh, yeah, fair enough. No one really sells it to me like that. Whatever. Tell me what your experience is <laughs> with, with, with all of this stuff. Because I know I you am feel bubbling. I am bubbling. Yeah. Go, go, fire. I, well, no, I just, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I think that you know, unconscious bias training, again, their hearts are in the right place, they're well-intentioned, but it's it's bogus, it's yeah. it's nonsense, because we will never eradicate bias, we will never eradicate unconscious bias, you don't even know it's there, 
What we should be really focusing on is awareness and understanding, A, first of all, everybody has it. B, you're never going to get rid of it. It's it, it, talking about being ingrained in our DNA. It's part of our survival to be able to make a quick assessment. It's how our brains operate. And unless we completely rewire our brains, unless Elon is successful and everybody gets a chip, you know, yeah. we're not, we're going to have bias about something. The idea is to be able to recognize when that bias comes into play so that it doesn't, you know, I, have, I tell my audiences, be selfish about it because your bias, if not checked, will rob you of opportunities, relationships, and experiences. And if you're sincere about being a loving, kind human being and wanting to bring your fellow human beings into the fold, then you wouldn't rob them of an opportunity, a relationship, or an experience. Will we be perfect? No, because there's no such thing. But we have to learn to operate around them. We also have to learn, this is not popular, personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. How much we're going to let someone else's bias or ignorance impact us, rob us of our energy, of our determination, of our self-worth. And that's hard because it is a hell of a lot easier to blame somebody, to blame a system, to blame a government, to blame whatever, than to say, you know what? I'm in charge of me and I'm not going to let that stop me. Mm. I'm not going to let that hold me back. Mm. And then sometimes we get mad at the people who do have that attitude. Oh, well, they just were lucky. They just, no, no, they weren't. They were determined. And, you know, in the States we're dealing right now with the Supreme court decisions of affirmative action being turned down for certain colleges and universities. Some people are celebrating that. Some people are just devastated by it. To me, you know, if you're devastated by it, let this be an opportunity to double down on finding balance and creating right. a place that's balanced for people. You know, don't let what nine judges say affect everything that you're doing. Don't let that tear you down. Um, th- are there going to be ignorant people in the world? Of course there are. Are there going to be people who are racist and bigoted and sexist and homophobic? Mm. Of course there are. But they're they're not as great as we think. But if we let them have that power, then they won automatically. And so much of this, as you said, is mindset. So much of this is about how you show up. And that's a lot of the work that I do is teaching people how to show up, teaching people how to communicate. It's not even about diversity. It's about relationships and communication. Yes, it's under the umbrella of diversity, and that's fine. But that's also a problem because we've made it this one category when it's really leadership, development, belonging, education, communication. But yet this is diversity. And of course, people who aren't being included in that conversation aren't going to be invested in it. Like, hello, like this is not rocket science. Mm. You come in guns a blazing. Oh, all straight white men are evil. They're they're the they're the problem. Well, how many straight white men do you think I'd be like, yep, you're right. (laughs) Let me just take off and leave. You take my job. You take my money. You take my power. No, that's not going to happen in any reality. So the idea is if we are, again, sincere about creating spaces of true inclusion, everybody has to be included. And if you're going to, again, reach an audience, convey an idea, a concept, a message, you have to be able to speak to people where they are, not come in and attack. Who learns when they're attacked? Mm. Who 
wants to participate when they are, you know, automatically made the villain? Who wants to participate when they're made the victim automatically mm-hmm. and already feels defeated? Oh, well, you're part of a marginalized group. You're always going to be a second class citizen. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. No, no, not acceptable. Don't you dare put that on me or on anybody else. Mm-hmm. What do you think about ERGs, these employee resource groups? What's your view on them? I'm really torn. I'm really torn. I mean, my initial reaction is that I think if they're not run well, they can cause more of an issue. It can be like segregation 2.0. Right. You know, because the Mm -hmm. idea is, and I, I get why they exist. I get so that people feel like they have community in a space where, you know, in a sea of a majority, you you feel like you're the only one, but oh wait, there's more people like me and we have a place to commune and connect. I don't have a problem with that aspect, but the idea is it should at least be an open invitation thing so that, hey, look, you're not from this group. Come and see what we do. Come and see how we engage. Come and learn about our culture. So, but if it's just this group that's kind of hidden away, like there's a school in California that has an all black dormitory and no white people are allowed in it, which to me is like, if there was an all white dormitory and no black people, like people would be up in arms. Right. And what about the students who are biracial and have a white parent? Mm. Their parents can't come in. Like, and not only that, but the school is a mile away from the regular campus. So talk about really segregating people. Like, is this for the benefit of these students to to be like, look, you to, in order to survive in the world, you have to separate yourself from everybody else? Or is that sending a message of, you know, look, you're going to be protected forever, which you're not. You, the real world exists. We have to interact with other people. We have to learn to engage. And I, there's a great book. I was able to contribute to it. Um, started as an article called The Coddling of the American Mind. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've read it or heard of it. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, the mm-hmm. NYU professor, and Greg yeah. Lukianoff, president and CEO of FIRE, of which I'm on the advisory board, they co-authored this book. And they talk about how this, this system of coddling, especially our, these younger generations, is having such an adverse effect where they, they feel fragile. And we've right. been telling them they're fragile. And that's what I think a lot of DEI does as well. It, mm. it, it tells people you're fragile. You can't handle this. Mm. And what do people do? They believe what they're told. If they mm. don't, if they're not strong enough, if they didn't have a, a background of people saying you can do anything, you can be anything, you're strong enough. Because it's a lot. It's like that line in Pretty Woman, right? When Julia Roberts is lying in bed with Richard Gere and he's telling her how beautiful and amazing and smart she is. And she looks back at him. She says, you know, but the bad stuff is easier to believe. That's our default. That's our natural default as humans. The bad stuff is easier to believe. And when we do believe it and when we internalize it, it's going to have an impact. Hmm. The I think I, I'm on your side with ERGs. I worry about it a lot because if it's not managed sensibly, it can create communalism, you know, and it can create mass divide and segregation. And this time led by the diverse communities that reverse, it's a reverse process, reverse segregation. And 
one could argue who, you know, that one school of thought is we are all for integration and the revival of those diverse communities. And we're creating intellectual warriors who are born confident, feel confident, know they're confident, know they've got the potential and capability because you're all the same and you all egg each other on and you are no longer inferior. Maybe you're even superior. It's no different to what Hitler did in his time with his rhetoric. Okay. Um, if if a collective which is now more empowered, whatever it may be, is supporting one another, to the it, the pulse is building up, the the heart's beating, it's it's forming into this uh, this being, this super intellectual being. When those people are let out of that circle, I don't know, five years, ten years, I don't know what time frame, will they be enablers of integration, or will they be champions of segregation? Um, and they might have another term for it. They might be like, no, none of that. That's all nonsense. It's something, it's some other term. But I, you know, it that worries me in terms of creating divide. That's one school of thought. But again, I'm trying to, just, as I'm listening to you, I'm also thinking about someone who's like faced shitloads of racism. You know, you might have, you, you know, I, I have a little bit. You might have faced it much more than I have as a woman as well. And you might say, you know, I'm trying to be all normal and balance the whole thing, but um, I'm not given the best opportunities. I'm not given the career growth. I'm not still given the promotion. I'm still judged. Where are you from? You go to a party, but where are you actually from? That's a common one here, by the way. Right. So where are you from? Hi, I'm Af. That's amazing. Where are you from? London. Where are you really from? I said I'm from London, but where are your parents from? You know, so I, I have to go through that whole process. Yeah. And it, in, in certain environments, I have to go through it like more to, to validate. And then I have to, believe it or not, I do use my, my past history. Some of it's okay. I was pr- privileged in some ways. And I have to use that. I did this and I went, did anthropology at UCL. And I, did, mm-hmm. I have to use all those things. These mm-hmm. are all, all mm-hmm. my credibility builders. Mm-hmm. I just like vomit them. Surely you do that too. I, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then people are yeah. like, oh, oh, okay. I get and it. Th- yeah. It's then you're, 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 because- you're, she's fine. She's yeah. Fine. You're good. You're good. Yeah. You're good. Um, and you know, our counterparts, if, uh, white counterparts don't always have to do that. They might argue that we do, but Hey, just swap places for like a month and you'll figure it out. You yeah. don't really, but we've become so used to it now. You know, a small thing is accents. I yeah. heard you mention this on one of your podcasts, right? So, you know, you, you, the the people who come from, who speak, who are bilingual, trilingual, mm-hmm. quadlingual, right? When you speak to a grandmother or even a parent who doesn't speak English well, grandmother's a good example. It doesn't always, not always born and bred in the, indig- right. in, the, in, the, in, the in the country. They have a bit of an accent. They have got a, either an Indian accent or if they're from parts of Africa, an African accent, depending on which part of Africa or somewhere in Asia, who knows? And then you adjust your English Everyone knows this who's 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 diverse. You adjust your English to sound a bit like theirs. You do, right? right? I, I certainly do. And then when you come on podcasts like this, I go, boop, button on, performance. Hi, this is Af Malhotra. <laughs> this show is totally about. And, and you know, I'm not saying I'm putting it on. Right. But I have to go, I have to wear this outfit. They call it code switching. So that's the term is code switching. Code right? switching. Thank you. Code switching. Yeah. So. Um, so this, the, the, why I'm raising the ERG issue with you is again, some data it's about to hit a nine and a half billion 
spend. This is outside of the whole DEI spend. I saw wow. ERG. Wow. It's a separate line. Nine right. and a half billion will be spent on ERGs by 2030 forecast. Wow. So, um, okay. I, I, so I, we're talking about this, right? We're talking yeah. about DEI, DEIB, the money that's going into it, the good, the bad, the ugly, but don't you find it fascinating that there's even division within this? Like, yeah. Do you think, and I want your honest answer, this is going to be a vulnerable yeah. test for you. Do you think it's intentional that we're being divided on purpose? Uh, I'll give you the, the, the pessimistic side and then I'll give you the yeah. optimistic side. Uh-huh. Maybe, both. Maybe. Why don't you give me the both? Pes- yeah. The pessimistic side is... Um, go, draws me back into colonialism uh, in Britain. And I'll give you the analogy of Britain and India mm-hmm. and how divide and rule was a strategy that the British pioneered extremely well in India, which then created a partition and then the rest is history, right? And there's some horror stories out of it as well. Uh, that is a well-known strategy. It is a well-known strategy to break communities up. You know, you find ways to divide them. In the corporate world, however, I'm not, I haven't thought through clearly why someone would do that. I can see it happening in society as a mode of destruction and um, re- regaining power by the right, the right wing or something like that. In a corporation, I'm not 100% clear because the corporate intent, at least in the United States, is very clear. That's the only thing that binds people from different backgrounds and colors and uh, diverse groups, money. Right, the, the America's promise is really simple: money, make money, prosper, make more money, prosper, land of opportunity, average become above average, above average become great, good, and then great, and so on. That's the books have said it. the The authors have said it. That's America's promise. It's a land of immigrants. It's America's America's promise. The UK is that's not the promise. It's maybe a different promise, and there are different versions of that that promise. So. And my pessimistic side says, side says, yes, there's something odd going on and it's weird. Why would you do that? Haven't you thought this through carefully? Or who's making these decisions? I would argue, are you including Kareth? Are you including AF? Are you including our counterparts in this decision-making? Really? Or are you including XYZ consultancy who's come in and said, the best model for you is... $5 million, and here's the strategy that we'll build out for you. I'm dubious, not sure. My po- optimistic side is I think they're trying their best. They think they need to bring communities together and discover who they are. The data and awareness in large organizations is pathetic. They, the 50,000, 60,000 people work in a bank. They don't know their, their, their diversity makeup. They don't, you know, the basic is gender and, and race. That's easy these days. Like you can figure that out. Like you can just, Optics will tell you that, but LGBTQ diversity of thought, you know, multi generation, generational, yeah, maybe a little bit, um, physical abilities and constraints, a little bit, depending if it's if it's visible, neurodiversity, no, and many, many, many others. There are like twenty five others. Are they using this as an opportunity to to create camaraderie and community and binding people together to make them feel safe and psychological safety and so on? Maybe that's what they're trying to do because maybe that's the only pill they have. They only have an Aleve or a paracetamol or, or an ibuprofen. That's it. They're not thinking out as to can Ayurveda heal this? 
Can yoga and meditation heal this? Those are alternative treatments. They're not thinking about alternative treatments. They're thinking about the allopathic treatments. And so it may not be intentionally, maybe just down, we've got to do something because it's a problem, isn't it? So it's not optimistic, optimistic. It's going to have a bit of skepticism around Because I can't help it, can I? (laughs) (laughs) This is why we're friends now, because we're very much on the same page. And I I 100% agree with the pessimistic side of divide and conquer. Every great general knows that. And at least here in America, we are being pitched against one another in every possible way. Male versus female. Straight versus gay. LGBTQ versus mm. it. like it's just it's this this or, or trans versus cis you know mm. left versus right you know it's just it's and it's out of control and unfortunately people I feel like they're buying it hook line and sinker mm. and mm. as soon as you I mean we don't have tv in our house I mean yeah we have like Netflix and things but we don't have regular tv we hardly even see commercials mm. so I don't want my kids seeing that I just I don't I I mm. Having worked in it and knowing what I know, which, you know, we can talk more offline about it. I, I, I know what the goal is and it's not healthy, yeah. but if this is your world, if this is all the intel that you take in, you are going to be brainwashed in some form or fashion. And I, I wish I could use a more intellectual word than brainwash, but that's, that's a bit of what it is. It's a bit of a brainwashing mm. because your brain is not, you're not able to utilize it as fully um, and have the consciousness that you could if you were yeah. separated from it. You know, we talked about COVID and what really kind of, you know, the, 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 the psychology, the psychological warfare that was put upon all of us on a global level. And now we're seeing more and more facts come out. And like, there are a lot of people who have a lot of regrets about things that they did. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, it, it is a hard one, honestly. But I, I have to tell you something that for me, I'm trying to reprogram myself, reframe this. For me, whatever this thing is, DEIB, whatever it is, call it whatever you want. Its end purpose and its end goal should be to create harmonization, mm-hmm. integration and engagement and a sense of well-being and satisfaction for people who work in jobs, for example. Like if I'm in my, if I'm in my job, and by the way, this is where technology can be so powerful. This is where AI can be good, where people's opinions and views, and I'm working on this right now in, in conversational AI, you know, think, imagine this like in the future, imagine a movie, imagine a movie in the future, sci-fi movie, you're sitting on your desk, you right now, you've got some job, you decided to go into a job, you know, don't know why, but you just decided just for like 10 seconds and you go into this job and you're working in this job, you've got this job title and like everyone else, you're ambitious, you're driven, but you're not getting the, the career progression for loads of reasons your boss is okay but like a bit odd and doesn't really help you progress or mentor or coach you and you're generally frustrated i.e this is what harvard says 65 percent of people in the workforce feel disconnected with one another and their managers it's not changed gallup's been saying this stuff for the last 15 or 20 years no one wants to go to work they hate going to work and so ceos are if they had a magic wand, like a Harry Potter moment, they'd love to change this and say, we want everyone like engaged and everyone feeling amazing and, and therefore productivity will increase. And, and uh, again, Harvard says, if people feel happy and engaged and feel like their emotions 
a herd. They're 21% more productive, i.e. more sales, more profits, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Yay. Everyone's happy. That doesn't happen though. So I, what, what I'm saying is DEI is about engagement. It's about making people feel like they belong even even people who are not diverse, like, I mean, you know, if we all become super diverse and we're the primary focus of budget, then what what happens to people who are not diverse? Right, 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 like, uh, right. What about me? A hundred percent. And that's literally, I mean, again, hello, you can be perfect and you can be happy. Not just trying yeah. to do a cheap book plug, but like, please, happiness is a choice. That's what I say. Happiness yeah. is a choice. Now, the caveat is that it's not a constant and that's okay. It is okay to not want to get out of bed for a day or a weekend, three weeks. You should talk to someone, Yeah, but it's as individual as we are. Yeah. Just like the things that make us quote unquote diverse. Yeah. What made us happy five years ago, isn't probably going to make us happy now. What makes yeah. us happy now may not make us happy in 10 years. Yeah. And if we can learn to go with that flow, if we can learn to choose yeah. happy, yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you're miserable in your job, figure out how to find your passion yeah. and do something else. I did not want to work in corporate America while I was pursuing stand up. I yeah. didn't. I did it because I needed a roof over my head and I needed to eat. And I refused to be a starving artist. You know, I sucked it up, Buttercup, yeah. because I knew what my end goal was. And if you just believe enough in yourself, and you're going to have days when you're like, yeah, I got this. And you're going to have days where you're like, what am I doing? Why? Yeah. Yeah. But you power through. And that's what people need to understand. And, and I, it, I agree with you 100%. The end goal of DEIB should be connection. It should yeah. be belonging. It should be about respect and value and worth. And if we can get past the nonsense and the chatter and the divisive stuff, the stuff that yeah. I do think is planted intentionally to rip us apart, we're golden. If we can see past that, if we can pull back the curtain, raise the veil and be like, oh my God, we're human beings having this experience together right now. And we are powerful. That's what I think the biggest message that is toxic about DEI is saying that there are groups of people that aren't powerful. We are all powerful. We all mm -hmm. have the ability to do amazing, incredible things. But again, mm -hmm. if you've been told something for so long, centuries, right? Maybe even you're not, that that's in your DNA. So right. we got to heal that, right? This is where the spiritual side of this comes into play. And not everybody's ready to hear this, mm -hmm. right? Especially in corporate America. But you know what? I take that back. I think there are a lot of CEOs who know this. It's middle management that tends to be the problem. Yeah, I, I, I think, and this is actually, as we close off, I think we need to give CEOs the benefit of the doubt. Because I think, remember, the CEOs, are it's one person, one person. And you can count them. Right, based on how many companies exist, listed companies exist out there, or the five, the Fortune 500, or whatever the number may be. But the middle management is a big number in the pyramid. It's a big number in the pyramid. And that's where confusion, complexity comes in. And that's where inefficiency comes in as well. And, you know, all of these odd, bizarre behaviors that sometimes we can't figure out that are illogical. In, in the context of business growth, in the context of innovation, in the context of meritocracy. They sort of the odd decisions get made where people get promoted that you think that's weird. Shouldn't I got promoted? Um, and uh, I, I do think if you go back to Steve Jobs, you know, Steve Jobs, bless him. 
he, whatever he was, he was a genius in his own right, but he was a big fan of someone called Neem Karoli Baba. Neem Karoli Baba, who Zuckerberg is, is a, a, who's passed away now, but Zuckerberg was also, a, you know, is into and follows and various others. Ramdas, who's popular in the US, mm-hmm. you know, learned, uh, understood that psychedelics aren't required, you know, because you can do it through spirituality. And Neem Karoli Baba was the guide um, based out of Punjab somewhere, he's passed away, but he was a manifestation of an avatar. And they followed him, you know, um, with blindly. I mean, they followed him, but he just, he did help these CEOs and many other technology CEOs get it right. I mean, Burning Man, I've never been there, but I've heard people have been there. Uh, Burning Man, outside of the wild stuff that may happen there that, you know, I hear about, it. it, it is a bit of a... Um, it's an event, isn't it? It's an event in the psyche that is challenging the psyche. It's an event that's pushing you in directions that you'd never get pushed in because it'd be the same, same, same every year in your job. It's drawing you out of, you know, let's say the corruption of capitalism, even if it's for like a day or two, albeit that there are loads of drugs and sex and whatever it may be going on there. I've never been, so don't know, can't comment. I haven't either. Yeah, but I but hear I've heard, I've heard, yeah. Yeah, I hear interesting things. And so, you know, I think we, we let's let's say this DEIB and whatever it may be called in the future for us is always about bringing people together and listening, listening to or having the employee um, feel like they have a voice yes. at board level. And they have a way of connecting with the board level. So their lived experiences, their journeys, their yeses, their noes, their sentiments, their reactions are somehow using technology, because you can't do it without technology anymore, we realize, somehow gets to the people who make the decisions, who we're saying aren't actually that evil. Maybe the middle managers might be, I don't know. But the, the one or two people floating around may not be that bad. Let's let's they're give not. them they're the not. Doubt. I work with them and they're yeah. not. They're amazing, incredible, insightful yeah. people who may be a little insecure because they may yeah. not feel like they know about everybody else. And they, they know that they don't know and they want to do it well and they want to do it right. And I want to support them yes. in that. And that's what you do as well. And that's the yeah. beauty of the work that we do when we can go in. And again, it's if we can get, you know, the other folks enrolled, then we can really set the path for a healthy culture. Cause that's what this is about. It's about healthy, productive, creative cultures where people are heard, yeah. where people are seen, where people are recognized. And that right there, people are so unhappy because they don't feel like they matter. Mm, mm, mm. I think you're, you're, you're bang on. And I think this is this needs to be the new paradigm. This needs to be the new conversation. We all need to have, you know, it can't be just you or me writing an article or a blog. That's not going to do it. Let's be honest. It's really not going to do it because you're limited by your personal network. You know, even if you're Oprah Winfrey, you're still limited by your personal network and your reach or the popularity of your career. What phase are you in? That shouldn't be the yardstick. It should be all of us saying, you're doing this, come into my club. You're doing it, come into my club. We should all do it together because we all want the same outcome. Albeit some people want to make some money, sell some consulting, send some technology, but we can all do that because the problem is huge. You're right. Uh, And there's enough for everyone to eat. Let's let's leave that aside. But I think, you know, one of the things I found, uh, Kareth, is in my research last two, three years, speaking to people like you and many others, there's so much silo-based working. There's so much fragmentation. You're doing your thing, repeat, duplicating what I'm doing. I'm doing my thing, duplicating what she's doing. And 
I admit that it's not easy for all of us to come together, but it's our job, our duty, my duty and what I do as a podcast host to bring people together. Like after the show, I'm going to connect you with loads of people, right? Whether you do any business with them, I don't know, but you, your commonality of thought, your inversity equation, I get the new IQ. I don't know. Um, you know, the, your inversity uh, quotient is going to be like, exaggerated and amplified because you're like, bang, I connected with someone. Like now I'm connecting with you because yeah, we've got similar ideas and thoughts. So we've, and we're embracing similarity, but we're two different genders. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I don't come from the same race as you. So technically I've, I've, you and I've made friends because we said we're all diverse. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> buddy. You know, handshake. I love it. Yeah. And so we, we've reframed it and, um, I love the work you're doing. You're, you're brilliant. You've got such, such fantastic energy. And please keep your comedy going because that comedy is powering you, isn't it, really? It's your mojo. And it's just giving you that, um, the, you call it the humor and the, the laughter, the fun. And we've got to, we can't make this too serious. God, it's just going to be awful if it's so serious. Because <laughs> um, there, there are serious panels. I mean, let's, it is serious. Oh, but, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, look, anytime we talk about kids, and, you know, I love what you said. And it is about reframing it. And, this isn't hard work. As we say in adversity, it's not hard work. It's heart work. Yeah, yeah. And if we can operate from that space, the heart is our second brain. It thinks mm. and feels and reasons independently. And if we can connect the heart and the mind and what is in between, we're, we're golden. We're yeah. golden. We're golden. Yeah. I love that. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. You and I can go on for hours, no doubt. Okay. And I'm gonna have to get back over to London. I was just yeah, over there. Yeah, yeah. Come, I'm come, come. You, you, you know, we're gonna spend some good time together. And thank you for coming on Straight Talk with Af. What a pleasure to have you. A wonderful person, a beautiful uh, personality, smile, energy, aura. And uh, yes, we are on Zoom and we're not face to face, but we can frequency-wise pick up things. By the way. Um, and I feel like this is this is a wonderful opportunity for me. So I'm blessed. Uh, we've got to get you back on the show the next time you have your next book or the next big breakthrough that you'd like to talk about. And more importantly, and I'm continuing to record this, I would love to do two things. One is uh, to get you onto the Straight Talk Mavericks WhatsApp group with about 90 of us ex-speakers. And we're wild. With our ideas, we'll get you on there to share out your ideas, and that's how moats are built. That's how these communities are built. And number one, number two, I'll be cheeky and let you think about it. But you know, Diversity Economics Institute is my mission, like like Investy is yours, Uh and it's a nonprofit mission. I need people like you to sort of shepherd it and have an advisory council. I have many brilliant people on it, authors, thinkers, CEOs, diversity officers. I'd love to invite you on it if you have time and space and just guiding us, you know, um, when you're busy schedule and just being there. It's just an excuse to connect more than anything, really. Otherwise, you disconnect. Otherwise, you know, yeah. I may not yeah. see you again for yeah. like 10 years. So, I would be honored. I, I would know. be absolutely honored. Like, I, you can't. See it, my cheeks hurt from smiling. Like, the <laughs> conversations, I actually like physically hurt. <laughs> oh <laughs> from man, smiling it's been, from talking to you. 
It's been amazing. So that deal, so that's that. I'll get that sorted. We'll okay. close off and I'll take your number in a moment. Before you go, last like five seconds, yeah. how has the show been for you? Any feedback for me? And for Oh, your- it's been terrible. Clearly. Yeah. Like <laughs> Are you kidding? This has been like, you've made my morning. You've made my oh, day. You. And it's so refreshing to connect with another person who's so dedicated to bringing goodness into the world um, and has a platform in which to do so. And I, I just, I so appreciate you. I, and I, I hope, I know you can feel that even though we're an ocean apart yeah. um, without getting too emotional. It's, this feels like an uphill battle. Mm. So, so much. And to, again, you know, connect with someone who is, has a vision that's healthy and that's um, positive because we, we, you know, there's a lot of negativity in the world. So I, I just so appreciate it. And I'm so glad that you are here and that you exist and that we now are in one another's circles. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that's so, so kind of you. And um, I feel that too. And we're, we're going to do some stuff together. Uh, I promise. And um, thank you for your heart and uh, hard work that we're going to put in together, as you say, and uh, look after yourself. Have a wonderful day, Kareth. And uh, don't go because I'm going to click off and I'm going to take your telephone number. This is Af signing off from Straight Talk with Af with Kareth Foster. Wonderful show. Click on the subscribe button on the, on the bottom right or the left or wherever it is. And uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Be well. Bye.